And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of the tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, and, uh, calf tender and good and gave it to a young, uh, a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a child, I was enthralled by magic shows. I think many children are enthralled by magic shows. I may have taken it a step too far, though. My first career ambition was that of a magician, which I guess is how I ended up here. I don't know. Um, I can remember my first magic show when I was a four-year-old boy, my father being called on stage. I can remember a magic show when I was a nine-year-old boy at a uh, town festival uh, when I was called on, on stage, and I think that this is what disillusioned me, because I got up there, and he put this big oversized coat on me, and he was like, pull that napkin out of your pocket, and I, and I could feel that it was just a bunch of napkins tied together. But as I pulled it out, you know, it just was a, this long chain of napkins, everybody, ooh, nah, and I was like, no, that's not magic, that's just a pile of napkins in my pocket. <laughs> and so my life of disillusionment with music with, uh, with magic began. Somewhere along the way, most of us become enchanted, disenchanted by magic. Sure, it's still fun, but the mystery that we had as children of, wow, how did that happen? He must really be magical. At some point, it disappears. And we know that it's all just a, an illusion. And it's not real but it's a trick. Since I was a child, I've learned about the laws of nature, and I know that if something goes beyond those laws, then somehow it is a trick. Somehow someone's doing something to manipulate what I'm perceiving to be reality, because it's not actually reality. C.S. Lewis's term for this way of seeing the world is naturalism. We view the world as if 
it's all just natural, that it's the normal way that things work, as opposed to supernaturalism, where one believes in things that can happen that are unexplainable by modern science. Naturalism is, is the air that we all breathe. We all breathe this. To a ex certain extent, naturalism is required in our day and age. If you don't have a certain extent of naturalism in your life, then all of a sudden you're going to be sending your money to televangelists and believing every conspiracy theory and buying all the tabloids because you believe all of that stuff. But the reality is there's a lot of people out there trying to dupe people, and so we have to have an understanding of naturalism so that we don't walk around being duped so that we don't walk around people fooling us, believing that the tricks are true. And so we live in this natural way of life. We have to be skeptical or people will take advantage of us. There's a philosopher. It's, he's probably the most well-known philosopher of the past 15 or 20 years. His name is Charles Taylor. He's a Canadian guy. He wrote a book called A Secular Age. It's probably 15 years old now. And just a really, really important work. And it's actually very, very difficult to read. I haven't made my whole way through it, but I've read summaries of the book multiple times. It's just very difficult to read. And if you read philosophy, you'll understand. Uh, it actually has to be that way. He would like lose his job as a philosopher if he didn't make it very complicated to read. In the book, he coins this term, and it's called eminent frame. And he says that modern people live in an imminent frame. Now, what he means by that is that our lives are framed in by eminence, that there's nothing that we believe is transcendent. So eminence means that we only believe what we can see and what we can touch, what's right in front of us. And transcendence means that we believe that there's something more. Throughout all the history of humanity, people have believed in transcendence. They've believed in something more. They've believed in a God of some sorts. But now, we live in a secular age and in an eminent frame, yet somehow we've still found a way to find significance in our life without this sense of transcendence. For example, we might go to a museum and we might walk around and look at the beautiful paintings or the wonderful sculptures and we might be moved to a sense of awe. We say, this is amazing. I can't believe that Someone did this. Look how beautiful it is. And we know that it seems to point to something greater than what we're experiencing at that moment. That there's something more than just the sum of brush strokes and paint on a canvas. It's pointing forward to a sense of transcendence, but modern people have no problem having that be disconnected from a real understanding of who God is. And so they live within this imminent frame if you will, this naturalistic way of viewing the world. But at the same time, they're still haunted by supernaturalism. You see, I think that most people still believe that there is more to life than this. They don't know what it is, but they know that there is. Our naturalistic worldview comes with repercussions. Our society it's more cynical than we've ever been before. We've become more distrustful of anyone and everything. We see through everything. The cynics, they really just see themselves as realists. I see things as they really are. I don't believe in the supernatural hubbubaloo. I just see things as it really is. But this comes with, with physical consequences. A 2009 study showed 
that people with a high level of cynicism also yielded a high level of depression in their middle years. A way that the, the Atlantic article that I was looking at put this is he said this. He said, the smirking 25-year-old is at elevated risk of turning into a depressed 44-year-old. Study after study after study shows that cynicism actually is directly correlated with an early death. It's actually connected with earlier mortality because we see through everything. And so then we lose purpose, we lose meaning. C.S. Lewis put it like this. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. And friends, I think that you know that without a belief in God, this actually is probably the most accurate way to live. You see through everything. You see everybody's trying to trick you, but the world is cold and hard, and the sooner we accept the facts of what the world is really like, the better off we all are. That's the mindset of the sinning. And it's the right mindset unless there is more to life than this. Unless there is a God who can step into the natural. Unless there is a supernatural force that is at work in the world. We live in a world where God is assumed to be non-existent. If he does exist, he certainly doesn't meddle in the affairs of people. And this worldview has leaked itself into the church. We, we don't expect God to show up in church. We don't expect for miracles to occur, even as believers. We live in a disenchanted world, and we've taken on the disenchanted perspective with the assumption that supernatural things are impossible. Because there's a certain gravity to disenchanted life, is there not? It sucks us back in time and again, where we just want to be realists and see the world as it really is. It's the air we breathe. We slip into it. Even the strongest of believers, we find ourselves slipping back into this. We live our lives without any dependency upon God or expectation that God might do anything. And this all feels like a very modern way to view the world. But it's actually the exact same place that Abraham and Sarah found themselves in. They live in a disenchanted world And even though God has visited them multiple times, I feel like I've given this sermon like six times in a row now. God keeps visiting them over and over and saying, you will have a child. Yet each time he visits, they're like, what, really? We don't believe you. It's like the same response. They live in a disenchanted life. They forget the power of God, much as we do. In this week's passage, we see God once again pierce their disenchanted bubble and fill their heart with awe and wonder. And that's what we most need today, church, is it not? For our disenchanted bubbles to be pierced by the word of the Lord and for our hearts to be filled with awe and wonder of what he is able to do and who he is. Let's dive into this text. But before we do that, let's ask him to help us with these things. Father, as we come to your word, as we open our hearts to it, we pray right now that these bubbles of disenchantment where we just believe what's in front of us and we have no dependency upon you, that they will be 
pierced by your grace and your kindness and your truth, that we will encounter you in a special way as we hear your word this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, verse one. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So it's just a normal day, like any other day. Abraham, it's, the, it's, it's warm months. It's the warm time of the year. Abraham is sitting underneath oak trees by the door of his tent. He's not inside the tent because it's hotter in there. So he's sitting outside the tent by the door under the oak trees trying to stay cool. And at that moment, the text tells us that the Lord appeared to him. Now, it does not say that Abram knew it was the Lord. In fact, we have reason to believe that he didn't actually know that it was the Lord. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But at this point, we see Abraham just living his life any day, any old day, trying to stay cool while it's hot outside. Verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, we understand who these three men are because we have the perspective of being the reader and we know this whole, this whole situation, but I don't think Abraham did. These three men are, are who we understand, one, to be the Lord, probably the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, in pre-incarnate form, and we see two angels along with them. Now, there must be nothing too spectacular about these people. They look like normal people because Abraham treats them like normal people. But he does treat them quite specially. Verse, second half of verse 2, it says this. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. Now, when he says, O Lord, if you'll notice in your scriptures, the Lord is not all caps. This is not the sacred name for Yahweh. This is what you would call someone who, an important man in that day and age, Lord. And so Abraham rushes off and he greets the guests. And as he greets them, he bows down before them. He invites them to stay. He brings out water to wash their feet. He gets them comfortable under the tree and he starts to bring out the food. This sounds like a five-star spa experience. He's just really laying it on them. He's really being very hospitable. It continues, though. This five-star spa experience gets combined with the Michelin star restaurant here in a moment. Because this is what Abraham Abraham says. He he goes quickly into the tent to Sarah and says, Quick, three seeds of fine flour. Fine flour. Only the best for these guests. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, Okay, if I'm coming over for dinner, I expect the tender and good meat. Just like, I'm just kidding, not really. Don't kill a calf for me. I'll just take a cow. Um, took the, a, a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. So this took a little while. He went and butchered a baby cow for these guests. He's like really laying out the red carpet. He stood by them under the tree while they ate. This kind of hospitality is amazing, is it not? Can you imagine how blessed they'd feel as he did this? And the scripture actually teaches us that this is a type of hospitality that we can embody to one another. 
And it actually explains to us what's going on in this passage too. In Hebrews chapter 13, it actually gives us a little bit more detail as to what's happening here. In Hebrews 13, it says this. This has been a verse for my entire life that has confused me. And this week, I have clarity for the first time. So you can make it through multiple higher theological degrees and still be confused about certain verses in the Bible. And here we have Hebrews 13, 2, saying, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, I've always read that passage thinking, you've got to be kind to strangers, because they might actually be angels. But... I think that actually what's happening in this passage is the author of Hebrews, he's writing to people who knew their Hebrew Bible. He's writing to the Hebrews. And when he references entertaining angels unaware, immediately everyone's head is going to be like, oh yeah, Abraham did that one time. He, he served these angels and the Lord and didn't even know that they were, he was serving them. And so they have an example of what hospitality looks like. And they say, this is hospitality, where Abraham, sometimes, and, and friends, I think this is true for us, it's okay to pull out all the stops. It's okay to have an elaborate dinner, to have a feast, and to be very hospitable with your guests. That's a, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, this evening, I might even have a few people over for the Super Bowl and uh, throw some Doritos out there. Who knows? It's not that you necessarily will entertain angels. I guess it's possible, but it's so that you think about this and think about how you should show hospitality to strangers. Now, if anyone should recognize who this is, though, I don't think that he did recognize it because Hebrews 13 tells us that he entertained angels unaware. But if anyone should recognize who this is, it should be Abraham, right? Abraham should recognize the Lord. It seems like the Lord's talked to him at least once, every chapter for the past six chapters, we've heard this conversation between the Lord and Abraham. Yet he doesn't recognize the Lord himself at his own dinner table. And I think it's helpful for us as we contemplate the way that God can pierce our disenchanted bubbles for us to realize that the Lord is active and moving even when we don't recognize him. If he can sit at Abraham's dinner table and, and share a meal with Abraham, then he can be active in your life doing things and you not even notice it. You not even recognize it. Friends, we have to carve out time in our regular life to recognize the wonders of the Lord. We have to carve out time to see what he's doing in our life. This is one way that we fight against this disenchantment where we believe that only the natural is real. We actually do believe in a supernatural God. We believe in a God who can do anything. Let's just take a moment right now to think about the past couple days and to consider what the Lord is up to in our life. How has he been moving in your life? If you're taking notes, you can write it down. What is the Lord up to? Let's recognize him. He's good. He's working. Even in your life. Even through pain and sorrow. Even through difficult times. 
and especially in good times. He's active. It's a gift. Verse 9. They said to him, where is your wife Sarah? And Abraham responded, she's in the tent. The Lord said, now there's a change right here. Up until this point, every time that the three men spoke or one of the three men spoke, it said they said to him. But here, the Lord speaks. And this is the all caps Lord. So we know that this is Yahweh now as we're reading this. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. It's the Lord speaking. He's using Sarah's newly given name, just given to her last week. Chapter 17 might not be literal week, last week for us. And he's promising a child. And he's actually giving a timeline now. All right? That's, this is a lesson to us that has nothing to do with the scriptures. But if someone says they'll do something for you, make a timeline so that you actually know what's going to happen. This is the first time that he gives a timeline. And Sarah was listening at the door behind him. That's actually important. It's going to come up in in the story in just a moment. Sarah is behind the Lord as he speaks this. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That means she's gone through menopause. And verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself. To herself. It wasn't really the most, if it, if it was out loud at all, it was nearly silent. It was not intended for anyone to hear her laughing. It could have just been in her own heart. But she laughed to herself. It wasn't, she wasn't interrupting the dinner with her loud laughter. She just laughed to herself and said, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? Now, I've read this passage lots of times. And every time I've read it, I've read it with the understanding that what she's talking about with pleasure is the pleasure of having a child. Well, I have this pleasure now. Until this week, and I started looking at the Hebrew, and I realized that the word for pleasure here is not talking about the pleasure of a gift, but it's talking about sexual pleasure. And so Sarah, as a 90-year-old woman, is like, are we going to do this? <laughs> like, it's been a little while, you know? Am I, am I going to, him, me? Like, we're old, okay? They were old. They weren't doing it anymore. Uh, their relationship, honestly, it's probably been on the rocks for the past 13 years. That's when Abraham had a child through Hagar. And Sarah did not like that very much. Even though she thought she would, she didn't like it very much. And so they stopped uh, their marital um, commencements many years ago. And friends, we know, we have examples of God putting a a child into a womb without uh, intercourse. But that's not what he does here. I love how one commentator says it. Because he says it like this. He says, God's not just going to give them a new child. He's going to give them a new marriage. And he recognizes that, she recognizes that it's going to take something that they've given up on in order to have the gift that they'd given up on. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh because she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. I love that. That's just like a little interaction. Uh, she's like, I didn't do that. Yeah, you did. Stop lying to all of us. I see you, God. You can't, bonus, you can't hide from God, even if you're behind him in a situation. He sees, he sees your heart. He knows what's going on. God saw those thoughts of her heart. He knew that he laughed. In fact, this promised child that she would give birth to very soon, his name would mean laughter. Isaac it means laughter. And it is funny, Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, they're old. Can you imagine a 90-year-old couple walking down the streets of Somerville with a baby carriage? Everybody would say, oh, what beautiful great-grandchildren you have. Like, no, he's mine. Thanks. <laughs> For the rest of our time together, I want to zoom in on one verse. I don't do it like this normally, but today I think it's very helpful, useful for us. Verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? This word hard here, a better translation for the word hard would be wonderful. Is anything too wonderful? Is anything too amazing, too astonishing? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? When Sarah laughs, God reminds Sarah that nothing is too wonderful for him. Nothing is too wonderful for the omnipotent. Sarah's response is reasonable. It's reasonable for a 90-year-old woman to start laughing. That's how we would respond too. That's a reasonable response. She's been waiting and waiting. Every week we talk about another promise to Abraham and Sarah that they will have a child. It's been a long, long time since that first promise. Sarah has tried trusting God. And she's tired. She's tried waiting on God, and he hasn't come through. Now she's disappointed. And her disappointment is moving toward bitterness. It's moving toward cynicism, where she just has given up her hope. She lives in a disenchanted world. She's become a cynic. She's disillusioned. Can you resonate with Sarah? Is there anything that you've lost hope in? That you've prayed for years and the Lord hasn't answered those prayers. It feels like they've fallen on deaf ears. So anywhere where you've lost hope. Now a lot of you are young and I think that the experience of wanting something in your life and seeing your life go a different direction is not something that you have full experience of, nor do I. I feel like I'm just now starting to see it because life is like this large interweaving of roads. And when you're young, it's like you got every road option available to you. It's like you can take any exit you want, but every exit you take, there's no, there's, it's very hard to go backwards, okay? So every exit you take, that immediately eliminates like 90% of the other options in your life. And as you go down that road, there's still many, many decisions that you make, but once you find yourself going higher and higher in age, you realize because of the way life went, because of the cards I was dealt, because of the choices I made, 
Some things just aren't possible for me the way that they used to be. And that's what Sarah's dealing with. She's dealing with the aging. And church, we have to be ready for that. Many of us are still in our early years. But your options become more and more limited as you get older. But is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Where have you given up on him? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? He can intervene. We believe in a God of miracles. Maybe you've grown disillusioned with God. You might feel as though nothing in your life can change because it never does change. But God right now is inviting you to recapture the wonder. To step back in and to believe in the supernatural. And to know that he can do anything. He can answer those prayers. Is anything too good for a God who loves you? Sarah had to wait and wait and wait. But God used the waiting in her life. If she didn't wait, she may have been able to take credit for the birth of a child herself. But now she's gotten to the point to where she cannot receive any of the credit. It's beyond her natural abilities. And God is going to give it to her. In a similar way, he wants us to persist in prayer. It's only through persistence in prayer that God gets all the glory. So if there's something you've been waiting on, and you've prayed some for it, let me encourage you to persist. You're not 90 yet, as far as I know. Keep going. There's a famous... um, Englishman named George Mueller, and he wrote down five names in his journal. He's famous for his prayer life. Oh my gosh, this guy like started an orphanage. His biography is one of the best biographies you'll ever read. He started an orphanage basically on the power of prayer. He never really asked for money, yet money just flowed in. One time, they were running out of food at the orphanage, lots of hungry children, and they had nothing to give them, and so they said, let's pray. And so they prayed, and then as they're praying, they hear a knock on the door. And it's a milkman saying, my milk truck just ran out of gas right in front of your orphanage. Do you want some milk? Because it's going to go bad if I don't give it away. And then the next thing they knew, someone was giving them food. It's like the Lord heard their prayers. George Mueller had five people that he wrote down in his journal that he prayed for every day to come to know the Lord. And by the time that he died, four of them had come to know the Lord. And after he died, the fifth came to know the Lord. The Lord hears our prayers And it's only as we persist in those prayers, and some of these prayers that you pray, I want to dare you to pray a prayer that may not be answered in your lifetime. But to know that the Lord hears those prayers and he uses the prayers of the saints. Many people credit the work of of, of 16th century saints for what, or 15th century saints for what happened in the Protestant Reformation after that. They didn't get to see it, but they prayed it forward. Where are you waiting? Waiting is part of the maturation process. When you approach God in prayer, there's two general mindsets that people have when they approach God in prayer. The first mindset goes to God and says, look, I've been good. I've done the right thing. 
I was brought up in church. I've done everything you've ever asked me to do. Why won't you give me what I want? Why won't you give this? Don't you see that it's a good thing? What I want is a good thing. Why? Why? What have I done wrong? And the second mindset goes to God and says, wow, I get to talk to the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth? What a joke. You of all people should know who I am. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve anything. But is anything too awesome for God? Is anything too wonderful for God? You see, friends, we take even our salvation, we approach our Christianity through this moralism bent that says, hey, I'm a good person, that's why I'm a Christian. But really, each of us, this is how you know if you're a gospel person or a religious person. If someone asks you, are you a Christian? And you say, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, look, I'm a good person, I was brought up in the church, I give money away, I do the right things, that's why I'm a Christian. That's religion. If someone asks someone, if someone asks you, are you a Christian? Your response really needs to be, yeah, can you believe that? What a joke. They're even letting folks like me in. Like, you wouldn't believe it. I'm the most selfish person you'd ever meet. But Jesus saved me because he's great, because nothing is too wonderful for God. Church, I dare you. Go ahead. Pray the big prayers. Pray the things that only God can do. Persist in those. Pray those prayers that make you laugh. Really? Me? After all this time? Really? This prayer? You can pray those prayers with confidence, knowing that he's a good father. Knowing that even if you're praying for the wrong thing, he doesn't give you a stone when you ask for bread. He doesn't give you a a serpent when you ask for fish. If you don't get the answer to your prayer, you just know that that thing that you're praying for, it must be a stone right now in your life in one way or another. I want to encourage you to do this right now. I want you to think about what is something in your life or in the life of someone you love near you that only God can do? What is something that only God can do? I want you to find something that you can persist in prayer for at least the rest of this year, but maybe until you die. That big prayer, what is it? I'm gonna give you a minute. If you're writing, write it down. Dare to believe. You know, the first thing that comes to your mind, you're probably gonna be like, oh, it's too big. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? This week, we all need to be thinking, what have I written off? What have I given up on? What is God still able to do? Now, some of you, if you wrote wealth, I just want you to go and mark that one out, okay? (laughs) That's a stone for many of us. And and try again. But it's possible, okay? Pray for things that only God can do. Here's one. This is going to sound very pastory, okay? But it it is one. I am a pastor, after all. Um, What if God started a revival that swept the whole world And the place it started was secular, liberal, educated Somerville. What if he just saved one of your neighbors that's hostile to the gospel that you've argued with? 
that feels impossible. It feels impossible for revival to start in a place like this. But yet, here we are. People gathered together to sing praises to a God who is active and who is able to do even more wonderful things than that. It seems like every week we get another story of Abraham and Sarah longing for a child. And every week God visits them and gives them another sign that they will indeed have a child. And so this week, with, it, it ends this week. They're actually going to have a child in a year. Okay, This is the last promise that I know of uh, until then. I've asked myself, why does the Bible do this? Why does it just go promise after promise, illustration after illustration? Like, he gives them, he, God gives them all these different ways of promising that they will have a child. He eats with them. He tells them to look in the stars. He cuts the covenant with them. He, it's just, it, he gives them gifts of circumcision. He changes their names. It's over and over again. Why? Why is the scripture doing that? And I think I have a reason. I don't know if I have the reason, but I have a reason. When we read Genesis, we see that it's like a microcosm of what happens throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And the experience of Abraham and Sarah is really reflected through the entire Old Testament, where we see God return to his people over and over and over again, promising them a son, promising them a son of Eve, someone that will finally crush the head of the serpent, promising them a deliverer, a king, someone who will rule. And every time he comes with another promise, the people hear it for a moment and then they forget. And so he comes again and he promises and they hear it for a moment and then they forget. Until one day he sends an angel to visit a woman who cannot have children by natural birth. He promises her a son. It's a beautiful story. Beautiful story. She will have a child within a year. And this is the boy that the whole world has been waiting for. Not just Abraham and Sarah, but all of us. So we long for his coming. The one to bear our sins and to usher in the kingdom of heaven as anything too wonderful for God. Just as God sat and ate with Abraham, this is the only actually occurrence of pre-incarnate God eating with people. He invites us to a table to enjoy a meal with him, to be reminded that that's the invitation. He stands at the door and knocks, and whoever will answer the door, he will come in and he will dine with them. And as we practice the Lord's Supper every week, we're reminded of the type of intimacy that we're meant to have through Christ in heaven forever. It's like the appetizers to the kingdom of heaven, to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so with that being said, let's stand and prepare our hearts to encounter and to be reminded of the Lord's goodness and wonder. Fathers, we come to your table. We pray that we would experience your presence anew, that we'd be reminded the way that you can do anything. And God, that you would satisfy our prayers, that you would hear our prayers and fuel our faith and help us to love you. God, we pray more than anything that you would change us, that we would see your grace anew, 
that you would change those around us and help us to live in community with more and more people and that Christian security that we have in Christ. God, we pray that you give us big prayers. And God, we pray for anyone who doesn't trust in you, who's disillusioned, disenchanted by this world. God, would you pierce their bubbles of disenchantment and show them that you're real. Show them that you care for them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.